This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Oh, man, we are right back in it. Welcome into Play-By-Play Cast, everybody. Joel Godet, glad to have you along with us. Thank you, as always, for clicking subscribe or download and joining us here on the podcast. Remember, if you haven't caught previous episodes, they are available for you uh, by going to the feed or unplayed episodes button on your podcast app on uh, your Apple device or by looking in the iTunes store. It's all free. Or by going on Stitcher and just backtracking as well if you have an Android device or if you're listening on your phone. You can get all previous episodes of Play-By-Play Cast uh, right now or in 40 minutes when uh, when this episode is over. You can go back and listen to any of the six prior episodes uh, that we've had so far. But my goodness, I'm sitting here. It's uh, about 11 o'clock here on Thursday night. Uh, in the interest of uh, balancing the political discussion, I said I was recording the podcast last week while watching Donald Trump's speech. I am recording it today with Hillary Clinton on my television. Uh, equal time. <laughs> but uh, I'm also back from Detroit, Michigan today. Mid-American Conference Media Day, football media day, was at Ford Field, which means it's football season started this podcast as kind of a summer project to help pass the time uh, and then obviously carrying forward from there but i had passed the time because summer is over media day is here and certainly for the uh, the power five conferences media days have been going on for weeks now and fall camp players report camp opens up next week we are officially into the thick of things for college football season and the fall sports season as well. That being said, we have some tremendous football-related guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Some awesome guests lined up for this podcast. You're not going to want to miss it uh, over the next month and the lead-up to uh, the start of college and, and really NFL football as well. However, a little something else going on in the world before football comes around, and that is in Rio de Janeiro. The Olympics start a week from today, and we've got an Olympic announcer and many other things on the podcast today. His name is Mark Zumoff. He's the television voice of the Philadelphia 76ers. He's also a very well-regarded broadcast coach, so we get into some of that stuff as well. But uh, as far as the Olympics and what is pertinent in the here and now, he is going to Rio to broadcast women's basketball at the Olympics. So uh, we're going to touch on that here right off the top, but get into a lot of different things with Mark. The conversation does get, as it has in previous weeks, a little bit wonky. So if you're in the play-by-play field, it's going to be pretty good for you today. If you're just kind of a guy that likes listening to sportscasters, maybe not the week for you. Uh, But if you are a play-by-play guy, there's going to be some really good stuff coming up over the next 40 minutes or so. The place we started, though, with Mark, and this took us right into the Olympics, when I spoke to him, I still had fresh in my mind the NBA draft, and I remembered watching the NBA draft, and the Philadelphia 76ers drafted two guys who immediately, uh, you know, as a broadcaster, you kind of cry, because 
you realize you're going to have to pronounce these names. And I'm, I'm thinking, poor Mark Zumoff, what's he going to do? Uh, when the Sixers drafted Timotei Luawu Cabarro, and I believe Firkin Korkmaz is the other. Because nothing can go wrong with a guy named Firkin Korkmaz. That can't be mixed up at all. I can't think of anything. That was, there, nothing. Nothing that could possibly go wrong with pronouncing that name. Uh, so, that being said, that's where we started with Mark Zumoff. And in the interest of full disclosure, I was like two seconds late hitting the record button. So we pick it up mid-sentence on uh, how to pronounce names with Philadelphia 76ers and Olympic voice Mark Zumoff on Play by Play Cast. Play Senegal, we have Serbia. Canada should be easy, I guess, but you never know. You know, you play the Chinese or Japanese, and who knows what's going to happen there. But I've done soccer, I've done hockey, and both of those sports have their shares of international players. So you write it out phonetically, you rehearse it a few times, and hopefully I'll hit it like I hit Joel Gaudette. I mean, I, I mean, half jokingly, but half seriously as well, because sometimes you'll see a name and ingrain in your mind one way to say it, and that's not the right way, and then you've got to kind of break that habit. What do you do when you stumble across difficult names to make sure you get it right consistently? Well, just what I said, you write it out phonetically, and then you From research the it. To, right. So, exactly right. So, on my sheet, I write it out phonetically. So, sometimes you'll hear a broadcaster say, well, he says it like this, but he spells it like that. Chances are I won't know how to spell it. But I write it out phonetically, and then I literally do some word association or uh, do whatever is necessary to kind of marry it to my brain, so to speak. And then when I hit air uh, and I encounter that name for the first time, I give it a long, hard look, make sure that I have all my mental ducks in a row, so to speak, and then I say the name and hope it comes out right. Tell me about the Olympics in general. Um, I, I saw that you were doing it, and I know you've got a, a host of women's basketball coming your way. Uh, you excited? Is it different? Uh, I mean, I've always thought it would be cool to be an Olympic athlete and kind of have the you get the whole national anthem played and you stand on the podium, and that always seems like a cool moment. Uh, so I guess this is kind of the broadcasting Olympics in a sense. Uh, you excited for that part of it? I'm excited for the whole experience. Going to a foreign country, traveling 11 hours by plane. I know a lot of negative things have been said about Rio, but I think a lot of negative things have been said about a lot of Olympics in the past. And then people say, remember all those calls for a bad games or, you know, uh, this is happening or that's happening. All the doom and gloom that you always hear. This venue is not going to be done. And, you know, this politician's doing this and whatever. It always seems like it works itself out. So... Hopefully, uh, not a lot of illness and a lot of not a lot of logistical problems. But I'm excited from the sheer standpoint that I have no idea what to expect. Generally, you know what you're getting into, even if it's a relatively new experience. Uh, this is literally going to be totally foreign to me, just in terms of policies, procedures, security, the health concerns, and then I, you know, I think the broadcasting stuff takes care of itself. I mean, I've done a little bit of network work to know that uh, the higher you go in our business, the less you do and the more you get paid to do it. So I think in this case, once the camera's pointed at me, it'll be just a camera like when I do Sixers games on Comcast Sportsnet. You know, I'll be working with uh, people who are very professional and um, I just 
I'm eager to, to see what all of the procedural things are about as it relates to uh, the amount of access you have to athletes and practices and that sort of thing. But it's a great, ex- it, it pretends to be a great experience. It's going to be a once in a lifetime thing, and I'm really excited about it. What are you looking forward to most, just from a, an event standpoint? Be a fan for a second. What are you looking forward to? Personally, I'm looking forward to discovering the women's game because I've spent virtually my entire professional life covering the men and grown men at that, uh, the best basketball there is in the world. So now this is going to be the best women's basketball in the world. So who are they? How do they play? What's the strategy? Uh, What's the culture like? Uh, What are the personalities like? It's it's really going to be uh, quite a change for me. Last year, I did sled hockey, of all things, for NBC. So I completely had to rewire my brain and, and get my arms wrapped around that. So, uh, yes, it is basketball. It is international basketball, so there'll be some rule changes and whatnot. And, again, the women's game. So I'm going to be uh, doing a lot of work, not only on them individually and the other team, but also just trying to get a sense of history because – you know, oftentimes you get blowouts or you're doing TV, so you need to be glib and talk about things other than what's happening. So I'll be doing a lot of research as it relates to the history as well. That's an interesting point, actually. Can it be easier to do something that you're less familiar with? Because then there's a genuine, I had to learn about this, so almost we're going to learn about it together as announcer and viewer. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make in that you end up delving into areas that you might not ordinarily delve into because it is so new. So there's some of that that I would have to agree with. I think on the other hand, however, you have to be careful not to dumb it down too much with your audience. For example, I think because soccer has the the status that it has in our country, oftentimes when people are reporting on it or doing play-by-play on soccer, they feel the necessity to well, it's just like they do in basketball or, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So um, the one thing I'm trying to talk myself out of is, uh, hey, look at Maya Moore. Her game reminds me of uh, Carmelo Anthony. Well, no, her game is Maya Moore's game, and this is what she does specifically. So um, that's what I'm concentrating most on is just making sure that I frame my commentary in such a way that I don't sound like a beginner and I sound like someone who should be presenting uh, the women's game in a particular way. I want to get into the the meat of what you do. And uh, one of the things that interests me, I think, most about how you've gotten to where you are is that, particularly with the Sixers, you didn't start as the play-by-play guy. Uh, and and I, there's always people that talk about different routes and different paths to take and different ways to get to the same kind of destination uh, walk me on the path that you had to wind up in the eventual chair that you wanted to be in and the different kind of twists and turns you had to be that weren't necessarily always doing play-by-play. That, but I will also tell you that if the play-by-play position didn't open, that I think I would have been happy doing what I was doing. I was still covering an NBA team. Uh, I enjoyed just about all phases of it. I was on the air live. Uh, I was doing interviews, which I enjoyed. I was doing feature work, which I enjoyed. And had fate not sent me in the direction that I eventually went into and said, listen, you're going to be the halftime guy or you're going to be at an anchor desk or you're going to be a reporter or whatever it happens to be. You know, I would have enjoyed that. I, I will tell you that 
the play-by-play aspect is my favorite, and I'm very thankful that I get to do it. I also think that being the halftime guy helped me as a play-by-play guy because it educated me to the team, to the league, to its history, and also because I had to do a lot of reporting. It got me underneath the surface. I got to learn a lot about strategy and personalities. And also the writing helped me to craft phrases that I now use on the air. So um, it was all good, and it would have been all good had I stayed the, the path that I was on before I, uh, I became the announcer. What did you want to do from Jump Street? Exactly what I'm doing now. So when I was a kid, I was growing up in Northeast Philly, and uh, actually basketball was my first love. The first year the Sixers came from Syracuse, which was 1963. My father took me to a game the first year of the team. And as soon as I got inside the arena and saw the hardwood and the bright lights and the satin uniforms, I was hooked. And I not only watched the game, but something in me was sort of pulling at me to start announcing the game. So I would turn the sound down of the TV and do games into a tape recorder. Then I got more sophisticated and would go to games and find a rather inconspicuous seat and do games into a tape recorder. And then, of course, uh, going to Temple, I got to do games for the student radio station and, you know, develop myself that way. But uh, I did a lot of different things en route to becoming the voice of the Sixers. I uh, did a lot of different sports. As mentioned, I was on TV as a host and a reporter. I also did radio news for four or five years and thought that that was going to be my my, uh, career path. So, um, but I never actually lost sight of, hey, maybe one day you could be the voice of a professional team. And now that I'm doing Sixers basketball, it's still a surreal experience, something that, you know, when I retire and somebody says, you know what, you did Sixers basketball for 30 years or whatever, I would have to look at them and say, no, that really didn't happen. But I guess it's happening. (laughs) Was there a long-term kind of plan that way when you, I mean, you talk about doing news reporting and all that type of stuff as well. Are you meticulously kind of plotting each move saying, well, if I go do news reporting, this will help me in this way? Uh, Or was it just taking opportunities as they came and, and you continuously kind of have that hunger for things in front of you and as you go on that journey, see how it plays out to maybe get you to that eventual destination? I think, Joel, some and some. I remember when, for example, I was transitioning from news to sports I was uh, I was working as a, a freelancer at a new all-news radio station in Philadelphia, and I was broadcasting the games for an indoor soccer team. And I went for a job with the local news station that you're familiar with, because you're from Philly, Action News, mm-hmm. and um, they wanted me to come there as a writer. And I said, well, can I continue to do play-by-play the indoor soccer team? Because that's what I really like. And they said, no. So I said, and then when they offered me the job, I said, "Mm, thanks, but no thanks. You know, I'll continue on the current path. So, um, yes. How long Uh, did you, did you regret that at any point in time or how long? No, 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 not, no, because doing the indoor soccer team, I did the games for a channel that uh, features Sixers basketball. And when the team folded, they still liked my work. So they had me do movie announcements for a while. And, 
you know, they, they, and then they had me slide in and I started to do some, uh, small sports shows that they had. And then finally they hired me to do halftime. So, uh, sticking with the indoor soccer team, which is long gone, proved to be uh, a, a perfect decision for me. So absolutely no regrets. What about staying in Philadelphia was attractive to you, or is that just the way that it played out as well, as opposed to, I'm going to go to Waterloo, Iowa, and kind of cut my teeth and, and eventually work my way back? I was actually ready to go to Waterloo, Iowa, or some such place, but it just so happened that every time I thought about that, another opportunity cropped up for me. Oftentimes for young broadcasters, what I suggest they do is if they are in a market, if they grew up in a market that they would eventually like to work in and it happens to be a fairly large market, what I tell them to do is, yes, you can go away to Waterloo and then come back. Or what you can do is try to get try to get two positions where one of the positions, say, would be a part-time job at a big station in your hometown market, and then, you know, try to get on the air at a small suburban station that's within driving distance. That way you can hone your craft um, at the small station, but have a toehold in the big station. And then, you know, you have a direct line to the supervisors in that big station where you can uh, send them your work that you've generated at at that small place and, you know, hopefully uh, fill a position that they have one day. You mentioned the writing. How did the writing come into play with the pregame, halftime, postgame, making you better and applicable to what you do now? So there was a lot of scripting that would go into doing features. And because when you're writing for video, you have to be able to write in a way that enhances what people can already see. So coming up with phrases that are creative or um, aren't so literal, I think is mandatory to good TV writing. And doing that over and over and over and over again uh, helped to to develop my wordsmith capabilities so that when it came time to doing play-by-play and crafting phrases on the air, particularly as a TV guy, uh, it came easier. So similes and uh, and and different phrases and what have you that I would use for my TV writing, I it sort of began to translate into play by play. So then I would come up with certain expressions, and you know some of them were good, some of them weren't so good. But that 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 aspect, Joel, of of creating phrases is. Um, it's exactly what I do when I wrote features. Only now I do it when I uh, when I describe the action. Take me on that creative process, though. I mean, like, how do you how do you find creative, edgy? I don't know if edgy is the right word, but I mean, something that that will pique somebody's interest or catch their ear without, at the same time, maybe being too much. Where then they say, "Ah, oh, that's that's over the top," or that's being a a caricature. Where do you get? How do you find that balance of? Wow, he really twists words well versus being too much? Sure. Uh, I think a lot of that is trial and error. I've floated phrases out there that fell flat on their face. Anybody who creates anything and anyone who dares themselves and takes chances is going to do that as part of the creative process. So the line gets drawn by your feel that develops based on what you've done in the past. 
So you have an idea of what works, what doesn't work. And even today, I might throw something out there that doesn't work that, you know, my producer is saying, eh, it didn't work. Or, you know, a fan might say on Twitter, stupid thing to say, which, um, you know, I've gotten plenty of. So uh, that's basically the way it works. It's art. So generally speaking, there's no right or wrong, but there's there are levels of tolerance and um, Twitter and your and your your boss's feedback and and viewer feedback will generally give you an idea as to what works and what doesn't. How do you get to the point where you don't overthink it to the point where you say, "I've got something I think works," but then you do a game and you're always thinking in the back of your mind, "I want to get this in," and then you miss it or you force it or something like that. Yeah, and you try not to do that. Uh, so I think when I'm doing a game, there are there are it's. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it other than, um, you know, you, you picture a backyard with the with like, uh, you know, balloons or balls or 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 small toys and the winds blowing them around. Well, that's kind of the, way the phrases kind of go around in my head. And sometimes I lose track of them and sometimes they occur to me. Um, if I have a good night's sleep or I've eaten, I can recall more phrases than not. And some nights I'm on the air and I'm just keeping it vanilla and basic because, I have no flow and I don't think that I sound good and, uh, you know, I, I won't try to force it. So I think that's really the key. You hit on something really important is that when you're, uh, you know, daring yourself or you're trying to be a little bit different, that you do so when it feels right and feels comfortable and you don't try to force it because often when you try to force it, it just doesn't come out right. What's something where you said, this is going to go great and it just fell um, hmm. well, there have been issues. Well, for example, we had, we had a game where, um, we had, uh, Meek Mill and Nicki Minaj. So I, you know, I wanted to build up Nicki because like any gentleman would do, <laughs> you know, you would say, well, you know, thank you for saying nice things about me, but look who I'm with. I'm with Nicki Minaj. So, you know, while I tried to build up Nicki Minaj, people were saying, well, he's throwing shade at Meek Mill. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't, but, you know, that's the way it was interpreted, and then, you know, big headlines were created. I have to tell you, that's another thing. When you're when you're taking risks in this day and age when uh, social media is what it is, uh, people have license to go out and, you know, take your words or interpret your words in different ways and twist it around and and then you're, you know, you have to deal with the consequences. So uh, I, I guess that's probably the latest example, but, you know, it's not going to stop me from doing what I'm doing. I might be, I might be a little more careful now in dealing with people in popular culture, but um, that, that's just a, a hazard of the business, and I live with that. When it comes to, I mean, if you're, if I can broaden it out a little bit, I mean, if you're talking painting pictures, storytelling, things of that nature, how do you get the right feel for pacing of when to dive into something, uh, when to start a story, when to roll into a certain anecdote so that you don't do it coming up on something. I, when you don't get your stuff, yourself kind of boxed into a corner, how do you get the feel right to say, all right, this is, this is the time to start it. This is the time to open this up. This is the time to drive this conversation. Well, First and foremost, I have to sense that there is an interest 
in a guy. So if someone's performing particularly well in the game now, I think that the audience wants to know more about them. So to me, that's a big indicator of, okay, let's start to tell his story a little bit more. Uh, sometimes you reach a dead spot in a game where it's just begging for you to buttress it with an interesting story or some fun facts or something like that. So that's another indicator. Um, do you not time it right sometimes? Absolutely. Particularly in basketball where the pace is a lot faster than say in baseball where you can tell, um, you know, five stories over five at bats and you could tell the stories between pitches. So that's just something you live with. Uh, sometimes I start to tell a story during a basketball game and get interrupted by a flurry of activity. And unfortunately or otherwise, I don't even have a chance to finish it. That's just a hazard of the business. But the two indicators are, you know, is someone doing something compelling in a game that would make someone want to know more about them? Or is the game hitting a dead spot or two where it needs to be supported by something that's interesting in order to you know, keep the broadcast interesting. What's the communication like? I mean, do you hit talk back and say, I think we should go in this direction. Can you give me a shot of this guy? How does that back and forth go between producers, directors, and, and, and you? That's exactly what it is. It's a back and forth. So if something's happening in the arena, uh, my director a lot of times is a pretty strong personality. There are stories that he definitely wants to tell. And if I see in the monitor that he is going in that direction, I think it's my responsibility to pay that stuff off and try to interpret what I think he wants to say and weave it into the broadcast. And then sometimes, uh, you know, I'll tell a story, say, and it will involve multiple personalities. So I'll say, uh, you know, give me a shot of this player and then give me a shot of this coach because the first part of the story will be the player and the second part will be the coach and then the director will follow me. So there's, there's definitely that give and take and it kind of works both ways. I want to get into the uh, the coaching side of what you do, too, if that's okay. Um, sure. One of the things I know you do is work with athletes. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to apply that to partially what I do and, and what some other people might do as well. And that's uh, working with your own athletes from the standpoint of you might get paired with somebody who's a former athlete uh, who hasn't done this a lot or is a little bit more green. Uh, what can you do to help that person leading up to a game or at a game, if it's day of, to say X, Y, Z will help make this run smoother and help make you sound better, me sound better, us look better as a team and as a, as a, uh, as a production? I think the first thing is to clearly define their role. So as former athletes or former coaches, what they lend is a level of expertise that I can't provide because I've never played nor have I coached. So when something happens, to me, the key is why did it happen or why didn't it happen? Why was it successful? How should it have been done differently? Why was this the correct move, the incorrect move? What's happening with the lineups, uh, the X's and O's? Uh, and, you know, not just particular plays, but maybe overall strategy. Or, you know, what is it about um, this person's personality that uh, allows them to excel? Maybe they know the person personally. There are dimensions that people who have participated in the game can bring out, and I think that's their primary job. Uh, I think my job is to be the point guard and to set them up. So what I do is I do just enough homework and I know just enough about the game that I can lead them down certain paths, and then they can address that accordingly. 
And then I think ultimately what you want is you want a two-person symphony where you have um, you have a back and forth between play-by-play and analyst whereby you create the illusion that you, uh, the viewer at home is sensing that two guys are watching a game and that they're eavesdropping on that. I always say that the best compliment I can get is not, ah, the game-winning shot, it was a great call or whatever. That, that I mean, anybody can call a game-winning shot. To me, chemistry between play-by-play and analyst to where they generally sound like they're in sync and that they're enjoying each other's company, that to me is the highest form of praise. What builds that best that you found? Yeah, I think uh, leaving your ego at the door is very important. So as the play-by-play guy, you have the mic most of the time. So it's really incumbent upon you to give as much airtime to your analyst as possible. Um, I think what I try to do is with my analyst, uh, Abdel Nabi, is I try to speak with him before the game and see what his thoughts are. And then I keep those thoughts in mind. And then when it comes time later in the broadcast, I will set him up to expand on those thoughts. And I think, A, it makes him sound good, and B, he gets a good feeling from me knowing that I care about him as a broadcaster and as a person to the point where I want to, A, see what he's thinking, and B, set him up with that on the air so that you know he can sound good and he can sound credible. So I personally think a lot of it falls on the play-by-play guy to provide the entree and the steps and the stage necessary for the analyst to be able to get in. And then not only having them react off of what you say as the play-by-play guy, but vice versa as well, so that it really creates uh, a good sound between the two of you. How much direct question asking can you do of them? Uh, I'm just thinking, and I've run into this sometimes as well, but like the old prosecution uh, line of, you know, never ask a question to which you don't already know the answer. And obviously we as play-by-play guys aren't going to know the answer, but don't necessarily set somebody up for a question that there might not be an answer to, and then they wind up looking silly. Uh, how do you? What kind of line do you walk as far as asking questions to your analysts to set them up for things, uh, but making sure that, A, it doesn't get too interviewee, and then, B, that maybe you don't back them into a corner? And that's a good question. And I would say this. I have a what I think is a reasonable feel for what it is that they know and don't know. I'm certainly not there to embarrass them. And I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't ask in 1973, who was the starting point guard for, you know, the Cincinnati Royals. But what I do know is their, their pedigree, their history, their career. And again, it relates back to what I said earlier about, Uh, your communication with each other off the floor. So whether it's communicating before a game, whether it's going out to dinner, whether it's riding on the bus many, many times during the year or on the airplane, you get a sense of what their area of expertise is so that by the time you do have to ask a question, um, you sense that they, A, can answer it, or B, they're glib enough that they they can talk around it based on just all the years of experience they've had. I know in your coaching, you also uh, deal with some networking type questions as well. Uh, so if I may, um, I, uh, I watched the commencement address you gave at Temple uh, a few years back. Um, and one of the things you said that really stuck out to me was, don't look for a job, go make friends. 
Um, when it comes to networking, and I, I, I always hate that word because it sounds so advantageous, I guess. How do you generate those genuine interactions when everybody kind of knows that you're, in a lot of situations, you're clearly reaching out for X, Y, and Z purpose. Hey, can you listen to my tape? Hey, can you do this? Without seeming like you're just trying, you know, how do you create that actual connection where you develop a relationship with somebody versus, hey, here's an email, what do you think kind of thing? I think that works in two ways. The first is that you hope when you do reach out to make a contact that that person doesn't forget where they came from and they feel a sense of or a willingness to do a little paying forward, so to speak. So here's a young broadcaster. He's reaching out to me. I know what it's all about, but I remember when I was helped back in the day, so I'm going to return the favor and do the same thing. So, A, you hope that that happens, and when you hit someone who decides that they're not interested in giving you their time, well, then that's the breaks. There are plenty of other people that you can reach out to and meet. But also, one thing that I have found about flattery or kissing butt is that even though people realize that you are flattering them or that you're kissing their butt, they still like it. So what I tell people is go out and make friends and do what's necessary to engage them in conversation where they're talking about themselves. So when you're asking people about their career, people love to talk about themselves. When you're asking people to critique your demo, they love to hear themselves talk about you know, what they think and their own expertise. So more times than not, uh, you're going to be able to make a friend based on the fact that they, they have a sense of duty and they feel they have a sense of obligation, or you are just flattering them. Wow, tell me about your business. Wow, tell me what you think of my demo. Uh, people like to hear themselves talk. And as long as that remains true to humanity, you're able to go out there and make friends. And the reason I say, you know, make friends, don't look for a job is there's a lot of pressure in looking for a job. So what I think you want to do is, and because most interactions do not yield jobs right away, if you have the mindset that you just want to make friends and allow the job opportunities to percolate later through those relationships, I think uh, it'll be a lot more organic and you'll be a lot more comfortable and at ease with the process and you won't put so much pressure on yourself. I think you just answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where it goes from there. But the biggest thing from your standpoint, not necessarily getting into the business and getting that first job, but when we talk about really solidifying yourself and kind of getting that next level job, uh, what's the most critical thing to you when you take a step back and, and look at how you make that jump to that, that higher level and that next, that next level? That, that's a very hard question, Joel, to answer based on the fact that that next job, who knows what, what demands, who knows who is making the decision, who knows what the criteria is. Uh, for example, uh, where you are doing major college sports, oftentimes uh, the match is made based on some history that a person might have. So you could have broadcaster A with 30 years of experience or and going against broadcaster B with 10 years of experience. But the guy who has less experience, uh, 
you know, may have gone to school at this particular place or something like that. So um, it's a very difficult question to answer. I do think that talent, of course, obviously matters, but uh, perhaps on the same level are relationships. So do you know people? Do you, do you know the guy who's hiring? Do you have a history with him or the school or the team or the channel or something like that? Uh, familiarity is a, is a great, great sales tool. Uh, I often say that when, um, when people want an electrician or a plumber, they can either go to the Internet and Google something or they can ask a neighbor because there's always a level of comfort when you're talking about uh, familiarity or even second party familiarity. So I think, um, I think, I think relationships are very important, uh, along with talent. Those are probably two of the more important things, uh, in getting that next job. I don't want to take too much more of your time. So if I can go through a couple of quick hitters with you, um, when you sit down and watch sports on television, uh, what makes good play by play to you? As it relates to television, Radio descriptions certainly are not appropriate because it's redundant. People can already see uh, what you're essentially describing. So what else can you add to the broadcast that will help to enhance what people can already see? What can you do as a play-by-play guy to make your analyst better and create chemistry between the two of you? What can you do in relation to what your producer and director want to do so that you can marry all that stuff together? Are you giving facts that are timely and appropriate to something that's happening in the game? Or are you just taking your homework and throwing it out there willy-nilly just because you did it and you want to dump facts on the air? Um, Are you providing the appropriate excitement? Are you providing the appropriate drama? at the beginning of the game, are you providing details? Who's the leading scorer? Who's the leading rebounder? Who's their best defender? Who's the person they're going to try to go to when it, when it gets in crunch time? Um, you know, Who's the leader on the team? That, uh, in the beginning of a game, will draw people in to get them interested because now they're not just players with numbers, but they're personalities and they're people who have certain characteristics and will probably uh, figure uh, in certain ways in the game. Um, Does your, does your, your cadence and your rhythm and your energy sound like it's the third quarter versus the first quarter where you start to pick up your sense of urgency and now things become, um, you know, a a little bit more important as opposed to earlier in the game. Uh, All these things I think go into making, uh, and whatever it is that I'm forgetting, we're going to making a good, we're going to making a good TV play-by-play guy. What's that balance between you? Let off with talking about not doing radio calls on TV, uh, with finding the right amount of action to call on a television broadcast. I would say that that is uh, inherent in the art form. So I listen to guys um, who are minimalists who will do less than I do in terms of broadcasting. They'll lay out a lot. Uh, Some guys will do almost like um, a lower grade radio call, so to speak, and I guess that's fine too. Um, What I tend to do is um, I try to come up with information that enhances what people can already see. 
if someone does something that's rather spectacular or interesting or intricate, then I may describe it almost like a radio call because I want people to understand that I'm emphasizing that, hey, here's a guy who just finished with his left hand or went behind the back or made a really nice bounce pass, which is something you don't hear a lot uh, about anymore. Um, Whether or not it's a three-point shot or a two-point shot, that kind of thing. So it's an art form, and there's no real right answer, but I think you can do it better doing it a certain way and making a certain call as opposed to, say, making a straight radio call, if that makes any sense. Who does great television to you, all that being said? I've always been a great Al Michaels guy. I just love the way he comports himself. Uh, I think he does a marvelous job weaving in stories and stats and pertinent information and describes the action at the same time. Uh, I'm a big Mike Breen guy. I think he does a lot of the same thing. Um, just uh, There are a lot of my NBA counterparts that I enjoy. I'm not sure um, how many of them you know or not. Mike Gorman, who's been doing uh, the Boston Celtics since you know the 19th century, he's been there for years, uh, is a real minimalist, whereby uh, you know he, he might just say a, a guy's last name or... Um, you know, he'll, he'll lay out for 10, 15, 20 seconds sometimes at a time, and he'll let John, um, Tommy Heitzen, I'm sorry, take over the broadcast because, you know, he's very opinionated. So there are different ways to do it, but those are, those are three guys who, uh, who I really like and enjoy listening to. Is Joel Embiid as fun in person as he seems on Twitter? He is, and you know he's he's a massive human being, and that he's seven two and probably like about two sixty, but he's really just um, a big kid. He is uh, he loves to laugh, and I'll I'll never forget we just had the Ben Simmons coronation, so to speak, where he had his big news conference at their practice facility, and while they were ushering Ben to the different. TV station locations to do one-on-one interviews. Uh, Joel was in the back of the gym with like four or five kids with a half-deflated football, throwing the thing up in the air and playing like baby in the air type games. So, you know, that's that in large measure is who he is off the floor, on the floor. I think he's a fierce competitor. I think he's dying to get back onto the court. Um, I think being out of the game for two plus years and being hurt is going to teach him a lot about his own character and fortitude and you know between him and Simmons and whoever else we can get to fill out the roster I'm really excited about our future I was just gonna say I was gonna leave you on that note uh does it get better well it can't get worse brother (laughs) you know we won we won 10 games last year which is one away from tying the record for futility for an 82 game season that we hold the 76ers of 73 and um you know we lost 199 games in three years you know, that, that's a lot of games. And, you know, I just making it about me for a second, um, you know, it became challenging. But uh, even though we had 199 losses, I, I wouldn't trade it in for anything in the world. I'm a, I'm a really lucky person to get to do what it is that I do. You know, that's a fair question. I, and I said we would end on that. But I, I want to get in one more thing. Uh, because, I mean, I'm not comparing the two because that's a lot. Uh, but, I mean, Ball State lost 17 straight games to end its basketball season two years ago. Uh, and I remember going 
to games every day, and it was different because you always felt like they were getting better and they were working toward a goal because, similarly, it's a building process. But how do you handle that as a broadcaster? Um, And, I mean, does that really kind of test who you are because you have to do more painting of pictures and storytelling and things of that because it becomes less about the game? Well, the thing about us, Joel, is we can't forget who our employer is and who we're doing the game for. So, um, you know, we have to understand what our mission is. And my mission clearly is to be the voice of the Sixers and, um, you know, not make it about management or off the floor moves or anything like that, but make it about the team. And yes, what progress maybe individual players are making. Maybe you concentrate a little bit on the opponent. Maybe there's some stories to be told, that sort of thing. Maybe you talk about the fine points of the game and you pick apart something and, you know, you do that for several possessions. Believe me, through these last three years, I, you know, I've come up with just about every way to, to paint a picture and, and talk about something other than the fact that, you know, we've lost X amount of games in a row and kind of dragging that through the mud. So, uh, yes, I, I do touch on that. I, I do say that at the end of the broadcast, but, you know, between tip-off and the buzzer, there are many, many, many other things to talk about, and that's what you have to do as a broadcaster. Many thanks, as always, to Mark Zumov for joining us here on this week of Play by Playcast. If you'd like to follow Mark, you can do it, uh, of course, on the Twitter. He is at Mark Zumov. That's Mark with a C. You can also find his website, markzumov.com. That is Mark with a C. And we mentioned Olympics as well. Women's basketball starts up uh, actually really early. I believe it starts almost Im- immediately. Saturday's August 6th, so this, not tomorrow, but this coming Saturday, for listening to this podcast on time, uh, women's basketball starts 11 a.m. Eastern time with Group A. Turkey will take on France. Um, I don't know if that's broadcast, but it is 11 a.m. You can watch the stream, so I, I, I'm assuming, yes, it's broadcast. Um, 11 a.m. coming up on Saturday, and then one uh, fifteen China and Canada. When does America play in women's basketball? Uh, Brasilia and Australia, Belarus and Japan. I didn't know Belarus had a team. Um, the U.S. women's team does not play on Saturday, but there's a lot of women's basketball. Uh, if you've never watched Mark's work, you'll have ample opportunity, NBCOlympics.com or any of the NBC uh, family of networks that carries women's basketball coming up next Saturday. Uh, again, though, many thanks to Mark for joining us this week. But we are turning the page, uh, and we might get to some Olympics guys when they come back from Rio. Um, obviously, they're a little busy now. Uh, we spoke to Mark a couple of weeks ago for this edition, uh, but I, I think it might be cool to rehash some Olympic stuff uh, with some guys that are going to be over there, and especially get their perspective post-games. So we might dive back in. However, we're going to turn the page uh, next week to football season because uh, it is around the corner, and we have some amazing football guests. College voices, NFL voices, uh, some of the best out there. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to want to miss play-by-play cast over the next couple of weeks, and uh, certainly, um, why would you have wanted to miss it to now? Go check the archives, look back, listen to some of the previous episodes, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Hit me up at Twitter at Joel Godet. For those of you who have sent me messages or emails, uh, my email is jgodet at bsu.edu. Uh, you can shoot me an email too. Uh, for those of you that have reached out, uh, I thank you. Really appreciate it. Good to hear from you. Good to know that uh, you are out there. Uh, and then also you can interact hashtag PXPCast, and we will talk to you next week. 
football on the podcast next week. Play by play cast. Until then, see you. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive. <laughs>